Uh, there are a few things I'd like to try to cover tonight. Uh, the difference between... Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, there. The difference between fixed concentration and momentary concentration and um, some unmindfulness and hopefully some time for investigation. It's, it's usually helpful to be reminded that there, if, you, if you divided concentration into two uh, overgeneralized, uh, distinct differences, there are two um, ways that you can describe it. So one is called fixed concentration, and one is called momentary concentration. And so, for example... Fixed concentration would be like if we turned off the lights in the room and the, and the room was dark and we put a candle up front and I asked everybody to open their eyes and to just keep looking at the flame of the candle. And it, this gets very interesting because say um, somebody coughed, uh, the instruction would be to ignore that and to keep looking at the candle. And say you had a very pleasant physical sensation on your arm that called your attention. The instruction is to ignore it and to bring your attention to the candle. If if thinking happens, you ignore it. Basically, if anything happens, you ignore it and you keep coming back to the candle flame again and again and again. Uh, And it's very important to know that the, the goal of this kind of practice is bliss, tranquility. It's a certain kind of happiness, and it's, it's the happiness of exclusion. It's the happiness of um, a kind of rest that happens when, when we repress everything, when, we, when we're not paying attention to life as it is, when we're not paying attention to life as it's changing. Uh, so, so let's just put that in one category, a big one. And it's important, again, to, to appreciate that um, that's bliss. There's a feeling of um, union with everything. Oneness, bliss, tranquility. Okay, so over here, and the other side is fixed, uh, sorry, momentary concentration. And momentary concentration is... Um, what you're attempting to do with a mindfulness practice. Uh, So rather than ignoring, as you can see, even in the first night of the instruction, the the first day, you're gradually trying to develop a base, which is called the anchor, which is something to come back to when um, nothing is calling the attention, or if you get lost in something, and it's something that, it's like a compromise between fixed and momentary in that you are coming back to something. It's called an anchor. And the metaphor of anchor is very important. So that the implication of an anchor is being lost at sea or not, not having some way to stabilize uh, and, and so if you look again at an untrained human mind, heart, it tends to be scattered and disturbed. Hence, an anchor. But in vipassana practice, the anchor is moving. It's not fixed. So the breath, for example, um, you're coming back to one small spot in the body or one small area of the universe uh, but it's still moving. So you're learning by coming back to this one area um, to stabilize, but to still learn how to be with change. And then, as you see, you come back, you stabilize, and the stabilization is the concentration aspect. So, for example, when we say, see if you can um, 
have your attention be concurrent with the movement of the breath. See if you can be with it just as it's changing, not behind. Um, That's concentration. It's connecting the attention and then sustaining it. The connection you do with both fixed and momentary. With the, with the candle, you're still bringing your attention there. You're connecting it, but you're sustaining it through something that's staying the same. And with Vipassana, you're connecting the attention, but you're sustaining it through something that's changing. So the goal of mindfulness practice, Vipassana, is wisdom. And it's by sustaining the attention through something that's moving, that is life, you're not ignoring anything that's moving, um, you're, you're meant to begin to understand its nature. Not the conceptual nature. So when we say, see if you can be um, concurrent with the movement of the breath, but see if you can be with the... Um, textures, the vibrations, the nature of this experience, rather than the word breath. And you're doing that walking, you're with the movement of the leg, you're connecting, you're sustaining, but you're not meant to be thinking, leg, 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 leg. You're meant to be able to, at times, really have the awareness with those changing sensations so that we understand at times, the nature of how things are. So the um, direction of the mindfulness practice is learning how to be mindful of one area, like say you're anchoring with the movement of the breath at the abdomen. But you can hear right from the get-go, the teaching is if there's a sound that calls the attention, that's life. It's changing, right? This, this isn't staying with a candle. It's choiceless, actually. You hear a cough. You hear a, um, a sneeze. You might hear some inner <laughs> sensation like the stu- your stomach gurgling, whatever it is. Most of the time, it's not a choice. And that's what predominant means. Your attention goes to what's predominant. Another word is apparent. Apparent is a little less strong a word, but it, the meaning is similar in that your, your attention is just with wherever it has landed. So if you're trying to be with the rising movement of the abdomen and your attention gets called by a sound, you're not meant to yank it back to the breath. That isn't, it's not a fixed concentration. If you can, you would shift to... Um, Maybe you'd have the word or thought about the experience. Maybe it's a sneeze. Um, You might have that thought about it, but then you see if you can bring your attention to connect with the vibrations and texture and notice them change. And then if a physical sensation or sensations, if they call the attention, again, usually we're already there right? When we notice it, it's already happened and we find ourselves there and there's a capacity in us to think wherever we've landed is wrong (laughs) and that we should be somewhere else. And that's what's the beauty of mindfulness practice is wherever you've ended up, you're meant to explore there. So even with thinking, ultimately, you're not meant to um, (laughs) relate to thinking like a a baseball pitch, right? Here comes the thought. In my early years of practice, I related them like, you know, hit it out into left field. Bam! Thinking, hit it out into shortstop, right? You know, you're just playing baseball because you can't, you have no space. You're trying to get space when you first start to meditate. It's like they're just so predominant and you're getting lost in them. So that ability to get some space and be able, it starts with that light, soft mental note, thinking and having an anchor away from, particularly as far from the thinking as you can get, like the abdomen. Physical space from thinking is actually significant. You have your attention start to come down and away from 
your head, you'll start having that the center of your being, not in the head with the thinking. And that takes time. So if you're used to your uh, center of attention and gravity being up here, you're going to find your attention, that's, that's what's predominant. You don't have to slap it and be violent with it. You just, your attention lands there. You explore where you've landed a bit and then you bring it down. Mostly the breath as an anchor is air element. We usually right away start to add something with earth element so that it holds the attention better. So usually when you start being with the rising movement, falling movement, as the falling movement disappears, that's usually when we get lost in thinking. Why? Because it's so refined. And you know, what, what are we with at that point? It's like very light vibrations disappearing and it's much more um, compelling to be with something a little stronger. So as the, rise, the falling movement disappears, the hands aren't too far from the movement of the breath and you just bring your attention there and, and it'll be more um, solid sensations than just air. It might just be heaviness or warmth. So the idea is that when you're with our, with our bodies, with our body, my body, your body, whatever the body is, it, you will start shifting out of the idea of an arm, a leg, a cough, a sneeze, the word pain, or, you know, it's like whatever it is, we're learning how to not just be in the conditioned response to the physical sensations of, a, of an overlay of a word, and then we don't explore it. And that's what we mean by what we're missing. The conditioning is to be in our thoughts about experience, and then there's no insight that's possible. Because this, in this practice of insight meditation, the understanding or the insight isn't coming from analysis or judgment or thoughts about an experience. It's coming from the attention being with the direct experience. It's a non-conceptual understanding that happens. And it's not like you have to do anything to make it happen. It'll just happen even if you're with some sensations for a few seconds. It'll just be, oh. So you might be with the rising movement and you, you notice it you might notice some pressure moving and disappearing quickly. You might notice that thousands of times and there's no insight. That's fine. But I can guarantee you that at some point when you stay with that, there will be like this, aha, like, oh. You get something so profound, it'll affect you for the rest of your life. So we tend to like expect so much. We have so much um, ambition and striving and expectation. We're taught to use our willpower and our intellect to make things happen. And we're a failure and we're no good. And we make an interpretation that we're failing at this because we can't use um, the way we've always made things happen as an ally. It just doesn't work that way. It's, it's foolproof. I love it because it's foolproof. It's a genuine, genuine insight, genuine interest, genuine mindfulness. You just can't fake it. And it's great. Would, would you want it to be otherwise? Probably. <laughs> you know, but it doesn't, it just can't work that way. So in terms of this part of the talk, I just want to emphasize mostly that the direction of the, 
a momentary concentration is toward more and more inclusion. So again, you might learn how to be mindful of the breath, and then you might learn how to be mindful of sound. You might start to be learning to mindful, be mindful of physical sensations. But then this, it doesn't stop there. Then you might learn how to be able to be with the beginning, middle, end of loneliness. The practice of being with the beginning, middle, end of the movement of the breath is just the beginning. Begin, how many people notice the beginning, middle, end of worrying without getting lost in it? Or the beginning, middle, end of anger without getting lost in it? So this is a training. And it's a training in momentary segments. So, so for example, if somebody said, Michelle, you have to go out and do something right now. My training is actually to pause, even if it feels urgent, and to be aware that um, I'm intending to stand. It's a training. I've trained myself to pause and to see if I can be with that movement of standing. Now, we might miss it. It, 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 We might miss that ten times. But you're going to catch it sometimes. If you, if you have that intention to see, if, you, if I can be with this very small um, few seconds, then the whole universe starts to open up. You start getting more and more time. Um, if I think, oh, I'm just going to run out of this hall right now and go get a phone call that I have to do in the um, dining room, in the staff dining room, and I'm caught in time, that would look like I'm in a hurry, I better get there, and, and I don't show up for the experience till I get to the phone. That's stress. And that's being so caught in time that you're not with your direct experience, and you miss, you miss that segment. But if you add up how much we're doing it, that's, what, that's why we're missing our life, because we're actually not... Um, shortening the amount of time of what the amount that we're actually paying attention to so this practice is one of you keep trying to um, make it smaller and make it smaller and by making it smaller and smaller you're actually getting more and more time until you start accessing timelessness because timelessness isn't some abstract concept that we make up that only the elite few <laughs> might access like 30 years later from practice. It's like a beginner can drop into timelessness this next second. Or somebody who's practiced 40 years that's in a hurry can't access it. Because it, it's... it's it, all it comes down to is the quality of awareness that we're relating to a moment in, or moments. So when we're eating, when we're brushing our hair, when we walk out of the hall, when we're with the sound, when we're with the smell, a taste, physical sensations, emotions, thoughts, it all comes down to, are we trying to control it? Are we judging it? Are we analyzing it? We're really good at it. You know, we're like judging machines. You know, we're just like, we're so good at it. You know, I mean, it's not to knock that we're, we're brilliant at analysis. By the time you're 17 or 18, you've got it down, you know, in terms of a modern human being. But can you actually eat and be aware of it and be nourished and satisfied? Can you receive a breath, a half a breath, and be complete with that experience and content? Can you be with fear and let it move through and not buy into it? If you're good at analysis and you haven't been trained at just being, no, you can't. And you're at the mercy of every thought, sight, smell, taste, touch, body sensation. You're just oppressed because you can't see it clearly. Which is why we're here. So 
Suzuki Roshi coined the uh, phrase soft readiness for, be, uh, for mindfulness. And I still think it's one of the most beautiful translations. Soft readiness for mindfulness. It takes out a lot of the extra stuff. But if you, if you really, you could contemplate it forever. I mean, just readiness. If you took out the soft and you just took readiness, the implications of that word are enormous. And if you just made a soft mental note every 10 seconds of the retreat of readiness, you would learn so much. Because there's a truth there. There's a tr- the most profound truth is that anything can happen. And so if you take again that theme of fixed concentration, which is exclusion of everything, and momentary concentration, which is inclusive of everything, which is more protected, which is more safe, which is more restful, which is ultimately more free. So the fixed concentration will temporarily feel good, and that's why we have an anchor, is something to come back to. The anchor is meant to be neutral, or as close to neutral as we can get it, that's still moving. Of course, it's never going to be perfectly neutral, but it's meant to be a kind of safe harbor. Hence, unless one gets massive arthritis, you know, we all have our issues, you know, but for a lot of people, hands can be a good anchor. And if hands aren't, feet can. Usually you can find something. But it's really something just to come back to that can hold our attention relatively well, that a lot of stuff isn't coming up to literally, like, throw an anchor off a boat to stabilize. But the goal isn't just stabilization. The goal is, is to, to feel good enough. You have to feel good enough to be able to face joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain, how life is. So the readiness means anything can happen. And then soft readiness Again, it's like, oh, if the mind is resisting what's happening, if the attention is hard and can't be with this flowing of life moment by moment changing, it's so painful. So one of the things we learn by (laughs) putting ourselves in this incubator or greenhouse of mindfulness at a retreat, it's like you're putting yourself in a... Um, incubator, uh, you start to see that um, this soft readiness is the deepest protection. And that the resistance to anything that's happening is actually the greatest suffering. So if you have... um, uh, an intense area of physical sensation in our body, say we've gone into it a bit, earth element. Why do we sit long enough to be in touch with earth element? Well, we all like softness. That's earth element. But how much do we like hard? And if you sit 45 minutes, no matter what you do, you're bound to be in touch with hard. Your butt. I love Vipassana practice because it's like you just can't avoid your butt being hard by the end of the sitting. And you're going to have to be at least in touch with earth element. A bit. Great. Air element. We all love the light, tingly, you know, stuff. And uh, the streaming and movement and um, the kind of ecstatic movements and pleasant sensations, vibrations. But when it starts getting tight, what do we do? And are we able to stretch a bit and explore it and then come back to the anchor? 
So you're, it's not meant to be something that if you, if you can't explore something mindfully without ambition, without expectation, without trying to get rid of it, without trying to get something, you're not meant to stay there. You're meant to move away and move away and move away, but in, to a healthy place, to a place that actually is happening in the moment but it actually isn't so painful. 98% of our practice at the beginning needs to be knowing how to move away from pain to find a healthy anchor. And then, of course, (laughs) you can't avoid it entirely in Vipassana practice. That's what I'm trying to say. It's designed so that you're going to go through sleepiness. It's designed so you're going to go through restlessness. It's designed so you're going to have anger come up at something unpleasant. It's designed so that we're going to see that we want something that we're not getting. It's designed so that you face doubt. What would this look like if we were going to design it so that you didn't get sleepy ever and you didn't get restless, you didn't have anger, you didn't have greed, you didn't have doubt? we'd probably sit from 11.30 to 11.45, or maybe to 12. And that would be, we'd call it a day, as Greg says, you know. You just, because you'd, you'd just, you know, maybe you'd have a cup of coffee, <laughs> come in the hall, right, sit for 15 minutes, the bell rings, you go, that would be it. Then you could avoid everything unpleasant. But that's not really what it's about. The harder part is, You'd, you'd really avoid that we want to control. So the opposite of mindfulness is controlling. The opposite of feeling protected and free is the controller. If there's a controller, there is something being controlled. That's the world of duality, of subject-object. And we're supposed to be seeing it. Classic, the breath. I mean, I'd say 80 to 90% of the people, when you first start to pay attention to the breath, control it. Probably 100. That's not wrong. That's not bad. It's like that's what we're supposed to see. That, you know, that's why I say, is it deep? Is it shallow? Is it hard? Is it soft? Is it vague? Is it clear? Is it tight? You know, et cetera, right? Well, why, why is that instruction happening? Because, of course, most of us are thinking it's not long enough, it's not short enough, it's not what, whatever. On and on and on. But that's just the beginning. You know, it's pretty mild how we attack the breath as not being good enough. Then, you know, just look at how much we judge one sitting. You would not want your mind broadcast on a loudspeaker. Because it's just, it's, we're comparing, we're analyzing, we're judging. And mindfulness is the intention to understand rather than to judge our experience. So we hear that and we think, okay, we're just going to sail right out of judgment, right? But it's the opposite. We get to see it more and more clearly, how much we judge. And then the idea is that you start being able to notice the judgment come and go like a breath and come back to the physical sensations that have nothing to do with it. That's freedom, is not being oppressed by the judgment. So we're not trying to get rid of it, we're trying to understand it. I have a... um, I had a knee injury that hasn't healed, and it happened last March of 2013. Uh, and uh, it's a long story, but I had a misdiagnosis and was doing physical therapy for the wrong thing, and it was getting worse and worse. Um, and I had this idea. I was on retreat for five months this winter, spring, and I had this idea that I was going to come out kind of bouncy. You know, I had... <laughs> 
I, I kind of thought I wasn't going to limp out of the retreat. This was just this expectation that I didn't even know I had, but I just thought all these things that weren't going right were going to heal up. That was my un- unconscious expectation. And so my knee is getting worse and worse, and I can hardly walk, and the knee set off my lower back, and just shooting pains, and just on and on. And um, we have this neighbor that, she's young, she has a, I think her son is 11 now. Um, but I, I'd watch her, like I'd have my morning tea and be looking out the window, and she jogs by, and she has this cool ponytail, and she really bounces, you know, and she just jogs perfectly, and so she jogging by every morning, and I'm like, (laughs) comparing, judging, jealousy. Like, I've never had it like this. It was so painful. I was just like, I love this lady. And I wouldn't accept, I couldn't be mindful of the jealousy right away. I'd buy into it and think, so I'd be in, I love love her. And it's like, I want to be bouncing. (laughs) Like, I don't know what it was about bounciness that I really wanted back, you know. And um, so I had this whole idea in my mind that this younger woman, you know, is bouncing and no pain and just, you know, watching her every day and I'm getting worse and worse. And uh, so my neighbors know that, you know, retreat was happening and they're not supposed to talk with me. And I really love my neighborhood. They don't usually talk with me. And I'm walking along and I... And I hear this car slowing down behind me, and I'm like, oh, you know, and it's like pretty quiet by this point. I think it was two months into the retreat, and I hear it slowing down, and then I hear the window opening, the electric window opening, and I hear, Michelle, and it's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh, is this really important? And she said, oh, um, my daughter who is the one that's bouncing every morning, right? She's ha- she has a, a nerve, like really bad nerve pain in her neck, and she can't sleep, and we're wondering if you have a Valium. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I just was like, I was so quiet, and I'm like, a Valium? <laughs> it's like, I had been in so much pain, and I hadn't even thought of even, you know, a Valium. What, I thought, do you have a Valium? <laughs> like, when you find one, can you give me one, you know? It's like... <laughs> but it just blew my... I had this whole story going on about this person not being in pain. And she was in a lot of pain. Not, you know, not always when I'd been watching her, for, but for about a month, she, she had stopped jogging. And, you know, I just felt like, oh, this is what we do, right? We compare, we judge. But it's not, it's not just that we're comparing or judging with other people. We're doing it with ourselves. It's like we're in competition with our last sitting or last year's retreat or, you know, this, again, it's our training we're good at it. So to move from that kind of extreme training of expectation, ambition, willpower, to just seeing like that forest I mentioned in the town next door, Peterson last night, that forest where they've decided to just let it be and see what happens. And this isn't ignoring. It's like mindfulness isn't ignoring, but it's like, a, it's like um, an attention that is genuinely interested. And if the attention isn't genuinely interested, particularly it with something painful or pl- really pleasant or painful, move away. Get that experience of moving to something neutral, moving to something more neutral, moving to something more neutral, but present, not a fantasy about something.
I'm going to do a bit about investigation um, now and then shift back to mindfulness because I think in some ways we can try to present things in a linear fashion, but it's not always like that. So say we start to have some soft readiness and we can connect the attention with something like the movement of the breath, but it could be a step the bottom of the foot touching the ground. Or it might be that we're eating and we're just um, starting to chew an apple. Uh, say it, let's say it's chewing an apple. You know the difference between just again being on automatic pilot, lifting up the fruit, biting it, chewing, swallowing it, but not really being there. You know, we, we are pretty good at that, right? But what would investigation be? And, you know, there, again, each of these subjects could take hours to go into. I'm just lightly touching in on them. But the, the way in which we can start to shift is by being willing not to know. And, you know, again, if you've practiced 40 years or one second, uh, it's the same practice of being humble. The, this um, Indian saint, uh, Srinazargadatta Maharaj, he said, be nothing, know nothing, have nothing. So let's say we took know nothing. Um, you know, that's very different than what we're trained, again, to be. To be nothing, know nothing, have nothing. But it's actually the truth. And if you, if you look at moment-to-moment experience, in actual fact, again, if you took soft readiness, the implication that anything can happen means that every moment is new. It, it really is. It's like we're not making it up that every moment is new. It is changing that fast. So that if we think we know what the taste of an apple is, we aren't going to show up for it. If we know what standing up feels like, if we think we know what this is going to be right in this moment, we're actually out of touch with the reality because actually the, the standing is always going to be new. Then the sound is always new. The breath is always new. It's, it's this quality of aliveness that is so hard for us to face. But it's our life. It's that alive. It's so awesome. And for some reason, it's so scary for us. You know, it's, a, it's such a ride, but to show up for it, it's like amazing when we can even just drop into the truth of how things are for a few seconds. And it's great, but it requires this little minor detail. It requires humility. Not knowing. Just that willingness to have the guts to explore. So meditation, again, I want to keep bringing it back to this theme of fixed concentration to momentary concentration. Momentary concentration, being with life as it's changing, um, that's exploring. And vipassana, again, the compromise between these two extremes is the anchor. You can use the anchor as a way to stabilize and not be mindful, which this is really important. Or you can use the anchor as a place to to start learning about mindfulness and then applying it to your moment-to-moment experience. And that's, again, the fun part about mindfulness practice. So say, you know, you're tired, you've kind of had it, but you don't want to get lost in, like, some the past or future. You're trying to just learn how to be here Just try being very lightly with the breath. And I think of it as 
you know, if you're, if, if you um, are really f- like far away from the ocean, you're looking at it from a distance. So you can have your attention really open wide and you're just aware of this movement of the breath from a distance. You're not trying to understand anything. You're actually not trying to bring your attention close to it or be inside it or with it. It's just like you're watching a wave come in at the seashore from really far away. Or if you're with the movement of the legs walking, it's not like you're trying to have the most profound experience. In fact, you're just trying to like be here very lightly, open awareness, you know, but you can do it. You just learn how to take a step or be with the bottom of your foot. You're not trying to understand. You're just trying to synchronize the, mo- the attention with the movement or the breath or a sound. It's very light and that's restful. It builds energy and it builds courage. Courage meaning the courage to be with change, moment to moment change. And again, you don't have to be like an expert to do this. A beginner is going to be doing very similar things to somebody who's done it a long time. There are times when you need to do what I'm saying. Very light, (laughs) light touch. But then there might be times where you want to go to the edge of the ocean and maybe put your feet in, right? You don't want to always stay far back and be from a distance. Um, And then, you know, you might hear the water more and you might like feel the temperature more and you might feel the sand under your feet. So this might mean that your attention, if you're with the breath, it might be not inside it, but you're sort of closer. You're not far away. And you might start to notice that you try to control it a bit. You back off a bit. But I'm talking about this with anything. This can be your legs. This can be fear. This can be happiness. This is, this is exploring anything. You can do it from, a, from far from the seashore. You can get closer. And then sometimes, if you're, you want to go in, right? You want to go in the water. It's a very different experience to go in than to always stay out. So in the water is like you really, you might have your hand here and see if your attention can be right there with the movement. That's like being in the ocean and feeling the swell actually go through your whole body. You might notice fear coming, and it's like, ah, oh no. And you run back as far as you can away from it. But really what we do is we start to probably think and think and think, but we don't necessarily go, oh, maybe I could actually just feel this as physical sensations. It doesn't mean you have to go in the water, but you could kind of start noticing, oh, it starts to tighten here when fear happens. You know, it starts to sweat there's sweating in the hands or it's different for everybody but do you see the difference between like getting caught and worrying about something and actually going oh I wonder what fear is what does it feel like in my body you know here come the thoughts here come the physical sensations is there interest no there's no interest fine And I'm not joking. It's not like going back to kindergarten to say, actually, I'm not up for this. It's time for me to go to the anchor. Or maybe I'll be with sound. I I can't, I don't have any courage. I, I don't have any energy for this. Now, would that be wisdom to move away when we don't have it? Yeah, would it be foolish to go in the water and go say hi to a shark, right? You wouldn't do it. It wouldn't make any sense to go in the ocean and go like swim right up to a shark. That's what we do sometimes. We're in physical pain somewhere, agony in our knee, and we think that even if we're tired and really exhausted that it's better to get caught in the burning, <laughs> burning, tight, you know, uh, throbbing, whatever it is. But, but actually it might be better to learn how to have the attention away from it. 
and you might get called. The thing about chronic pain is that you get called back to the throbbing or the burning or the tightness and you just notice it, you move away. You notice it, you move away. That might be a whole sitting. You get pulled, you move out. You get, that's good practice. Some of you might have heard me talk about um, these feral cats that I've had um, for the last three years. Uh, and I'm telling this in, in relationship to acceptance versus resistance. Uh, there's some part of me that I think doesn't quite accept that they're feral. You know, so like feral cat, feral. <laughs> feral, right? Not domesticated, not tame. And I have this idea that they should get less afraid of me over time. So I've, I hardly ever am home for very long. And so I had this whole big idea that, okay, I'm going to be home for five or six months and we're going to see some great changes. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the woman jogging by me, you know, and just thinking, oh, I'm going to bounce like that <laughs> at the end of my retreat. You know, it's, where do these ideas come from, right? Desire. Um, so I just, like, had this whole idea that after five or six months, you know, when the house sitter came, that they were all going to be just jumping at her legs and she's going to have to, you know, pet them. And I don't know what I was thinking. So... Um, you know, they come up, they come up in the porch, and you walk out, and they just <laughs> they look at you like you, you know you're a weapon of mass destruction, and they they you know they've started to cool out a bit, but it's like you open the door, and it's like they look at you, and it's like they're so afraid, and I'll have this thought, okay, after four months, my thought is, why are you still afraid of me, right? And it's so poignant. Like, why are you still afraid of me? D- don't you realize how nice I am? <laughs> you know? And they're like, mm, you know, and the, you know, they're so much less afraid. But I have to keep going, oh, yeah. Am I accepting the fact that they're, they're just afraid? It's totally okay that they're afraid. And it's probably been one of my most powerful teachers, just that, that, that daily reminder that why, you know, who's in charge here? You know, what, what's the problem? Is it really my fear of fear? Like, is it really my stuff? And yes, they've gotten less afraid, but it's not like... Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, it's not like they're inside 24 hours a day purring and just like no fear anymore. No. And that's not their life. That's not what will happen. They'll, they'll very gradually over many years be a little less afraid. Great practice for me. You know, it's like when I get afraid, is it like, oh, my good friend fear, anxiety? Or is it, oh no, I thought I got rid of you. Are you still, are you, I love the poisonous disdain when we're, you know, are you still getting angry over that? You know, it's like we're so mean. We're so cruel to ourselves. Rather than, again, mindfulness is just pausing. It's that art of the pause and seeing, is there a soft mental note here? Maybe it's not hearing, it might not be stepping, it might not be chewing. It's just simply, oh, fear. The intention to understand rather than to judge it, to allow it, to explore it. Can't be with it? Fine. You don't have to force it. Because this is learning how to have a relationship of wisdom or kindness with whatever appears. It's not about what is appearing. And it's, 
this endless learning of that we don't have to make an interpretation about ourselves in relationship to what's happening. If something unpleasant is happening, it doesn't mean it's our fault and that we're a bad <laughs> yogi. And if there's something pleasant happening, that it is something we did and we're a good yogi. Or we're a good person, I'm a bad person, I'm a good per. This just is meant to just keep eroding that wrong view, that wrong view, that wrong view of reality. All this really requires, really, of us is a lot of patience. And patience is a kind of um, loving kindness. Sri Nisargadatta says, um, Have patience with yourself, for you are your only obstacle. That's supposed to be funny. (laughs) Thanks, that's good. So I'd like to end with um, a haiku by Onitsua, Japanese. He was born in 1660, died in 1738. True obedience. Silently the flowers speak to the inner ear. True obedience, silently the flowers speak to the inner ear. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.